You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. From Isaiah 65, and then Sheena's going to read our gospel text for today. So this is Isaiah 65, starting in verse 17. And Isaiah is prophesying the word of the Lord. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And then I started to have problems as I read down the rest of this. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. I was like, oh no. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands." They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And I was getting mad as I was reading this, and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. I'm like, where's that been, God? Like, I've been calling, and you haven't answered sometimes. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Yeah, I read that and thought, I can't be negative on Easter, but I don't know if I feel great about everything I just read. And then I read this. From the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that they must rise from the dead, that he, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she went, she stooped to look into the tomb. And, as she, and she saw two angels in white sitting there with the body of Jesus, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, 
She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. So, yeah, I know on Easter, it's like, let's, let's just be super positive on Easter Sunday and, and not, you know, be negative. But is it, can I, can I just express some just real feelings that I had this week? Is that okay? Let's just be honest about what I read. I know that it's the job of a pastor to just always say positive things and basically just turn the church into a bunch of spiritual diabetics by just feeding them sugar all of the time. But I read that Isaiah text, and it did not sit well with me. And I felt this title sort of pop into my spirit, and the title of today's sermon is Empty But Not Vacant. Empty But Not Vacant. The biblical texts, when you read the Bible, it's meant to be an encounter, It's not primarily a book that is meant to command. It's a book that's primarily meant to invite. When we read the text, we need to first realize that the text is reading us, and it's calling us into an encounter. And the way we feel when we read the Bible is part of how the Bible works. It's meant to draw a reaction out of us. It's meant to reveal our proclivities, our opinions, our values, both good and maybe some values that are amiss. And when I read these lines in Isaiah, there will be no weeping. I was like, but there is a ton of weeping still. People will grow old. Just in the, since COVID, I've done seven or eight memorial services, many of them tragic. And I was getting frustrated when I read this. Work will pay off. Really. Is everybody's job in the room paying off exactly the way you envisioned it right now? I mean, mine is, just so everybody knows. Mine is. We're doing okay. My coworkers are weird, but everybody else. Our secretary's the worst, but everybody else. For guests, the secretary's my mom. But honestly, you wake up on Monday and you're like, I cannot wait to get stuck in traffic and go to a job that I'm not 100% sure I want to be at ever. That's everybody's favorite part of the day. And when we read, he'll, he'll answer before we ask. I'm like, no, you won't. This is, this is honestly how I pray. I'm like, God, no, you won't. I talk to him like Sophia talks to me. I'm like, you're lying. You're lying right now. David says in the Psalms, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or my people begging for bread. And I'm like, I have. I've been in India I saw Christians that are more committed to the church than any of us will ever be any point in our life begging for bread. What is going on in the text? The wolf will lie down with the lamb. That's an analogy for this. There will be no more prey because there will be no more predator. Predators will be gone, and so there will be no more prey. But we don't live in a world where that's taking place right now. 
And then the most mysterious, is this super positive for Easter? Like everyone's really glad you got dressed for this right now? And then he says, the serpent will only eat dust, which is a cryptic and very, very, almost like from the book of Revelation type analogy that's meant to say that the devil or the enemy or evil will no more feed on us, but will feed on the dust of the ground. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure you have to be almost mindlessly privileged to read that text and not get upset about it. You have to have your head so far buried in the sand, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, to read that text and say, thank you, God, because almost all of those things that are promised, I sat there and I said, God, and these are the words that came out of my mouth. I said, when I read that text, I feel like I'm in a graveyard staring into an empty tomb. That's how I felt. I felt like I'm looking into emptiness. Where, where do we find the hope? How does a person get up across the world on a Sunday morning, on Easter Sunday morning, and read that text and say, see, it's all been taken care of? And then forget about just the world. In each and every one of us, there's an emptiness that we spend the most of our life trying to fill so that we don't have to pay attention to it or be real about it. And we fill it with food and drink and entertainment and social media and rabbit hole scrolling. And all of a sudden, two and a half hours went by and you've just been doing this and your thumb is the only thing that got a workout. We got jacked up thumbs. But we're doing things. We're either overworking or underworking, over-celebrating or under-celebrating, overeating or under-eating, over-sleeping or under-sleeping, all trying to not be real about the fact that I walk around with an emptiness. And for Christians, we may be the ones who struggle with this the most because we feel like we shouldn't be. We feel like we should be the ones who always prove God, who are always cheery, who always have this like pasted smile because if we act like there's actual emptiness, how will anybody else think that Jesus is good? And we live under the weight of this pressure to ignore what's really empty in our life. And we, and because we're not taking any advice, we're living under the weight of many vices. You can all go home now. Thank you for coming. That was, I hope you were encouraged this morning. Ron was about to be out. By the way, everybody, ladies, our speaker for the mother-daughter celebration is going to be the one and only Essie Green. So you want to be here for that. <laughs> And for our guests, I have crippling ADD. So these, I just kind of bounce around sometimes, and I have notes, so I remember where I am today. Jacqueline's like, you're going to remember your spot? I'm like, probably not. I probably won't. So just pause there for a second. You ever have a friend who's like always a one-upper kind of person? Like you get a new job, and they're like, oh, I got five new jobs this week. And you're like, nobody can do that. You're like, I hit a hole in one. Well, I walked on the moon. Like that's not even true. I know many of you know my dear, dear friend, Dr. Chris Green, who preached an amazing message here a few weeks ago. Yes, he did. He had a stroke, came here, and preached an amazing message. And somebody at the door said to me, if that's how you preach after a stroke, you should have a stroke. <laughs> I was like, please, please leave and be blessed in the name of the Lord. And don't trip down those stairs. About, about four years ago, I went, I started a relationship with a spiritual director at uh, Holy Cross Monastery in West Park, 
And it's been an amazing experience in my life to have, like, pastors need pastors too, amen? And I remember I sat there for 20 years and was fed, and then I became the pastor and realized I still need to be fed. I still need somebody in my life. And so one of the ways that I, I satisfy that need is I go to a spiritual director who's life it is to pray and read and discern and then help, you know, other pastors navigate the pressures that we live under. And it's been an amazing experience. And when Chris Green came a few weeks ago, I said, Chris, I want to invite you to the monastery. Brother Randy would really love to meet you. I think it'll be great. Let's give him one of your books. You can sign it. And uh, we get to the monastery and Brother Randy, like, I didn't even see him come out. And Chris runs over and hugs him. And they're like, oh, my God. He's like, Brother Randy's like, I listen to all your podcasts. And I'm like, I'm like, Brother Randy, do, do you listen to my podcast, Dad? Like, he's like, no. I was like, okay, good. I'm so glad you listened to all of Chris's. And then they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I was in Toronto. I was in Toronto studying, too. Did you study under, you know, Eric Mangina? Oh, yeah, I studied under him, too. Oh, we both know the same amazing guy. And I'm just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, I'm going to go eat or something. I didn't know you guys were best friends this entire time. So Brother Randy gives us a tour of the monastery, and he brings us into a room where there's only original copy books from the pre-1900s. So, like, Chris has read all of them, of course. I felt like I shouldn't touch anything because I will break them. I'm not classy enough, nor am I meant for a room like that. And I was also annoyed because when I got the tour, Brother Randy never showed me this room. Like, we did not have this dope room the whole time. Like, did you just put it in? Chris, they just put, oh, it's been here for 7,000 years? All right, cool, no. So at one point, and this is interesting, I want to show you. At one point, Brother Randy takes us upstairs, and he shows us this room where everybody sits in the morning when they're getting ready to have their meeting and discuss what they're going to be doing for the day. And so it's a meeting space where they pray, they discuss. It's very functional. There's a lot of life that happens there. Uh, a lot of prayer, a lot of updating, you know, testimony, like a lot of things. And then he showed us the cool library, and underneath, exactly underneath this room, in the really, really cool library that I didn't know was there until Chris came. Can you put up the next picture real fast? That is directly under the room where all the life happens. And Brother Randy walks into the center of that space, and he goes, this is the most pointless spot in the whole monastery. It's just empty space, and he walks out. So above it, a room with chairs, a lot of life, prayers, Bible, celebrations, tragedies, everything happens. And right underneath it, it's just the pillars that hold up the monastery. And Brother Randy says, it's just empty space. Now me, I'm probably having ADD like, guys, I think I saw a deer run outside or something, and I missed the whole thing. But Chris has the light bulb go off but doesn't tell me anything yet. I want you to hold that thought, and let's go back to the emptiness that I felt when I read this chapter in Isaiah. In all of the resurrection accounts, we never see Jesus walking out of the tomb. All we ever see are people walking into the empty tomb. We would have written the, the chapters very differently. We would have written it in such a way where many people saw Jesus roll the stone away, saw Jesus walk out, saw Jesus speak to people. We would have written it that way, but none of the resurrection accounts, none of them tell us how, what it looked like when Jesus, what they all indicate is that Jesus rose and left the tomb before the stone was ever rolled away. Because the stone was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out, 
but so that we could walk in to emptiness and see that emptiness is no longer vacant. Something is there in that empty space. Isaiah says that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. What God does when he creates is he creates out of nothing. The Spirit of God hovered over the empty space of the waters in Genesis, and God said, let there be, and there was. The Holy Spirit hovered over the Virgin Mary, and in an empty womb produced a child. The Holy Spirit hovered over the upper room in Acts chapter 2, and with people's mind completely empty to what God would call them to, the church was birthed with new tongues and signs and wonders. The Holy Spirit always hovers over empty spaces, and so in many ways, if we want to encounter God, we have to walk into the empty spaces of our life. If we want to encounter God, we have to embrace the empty spaces of the world. If we want to encounter God, we have to go into the place that we think is nowhere. But because we serve an omnipresent God, even God is in the place called nowhere. God is also nowhere. He's everywhere, and because he's everywhere, he's exactly nowhere. Because wherever nowhere is, he's there now. The tomb was open, and we're invited in. And what happens... When Mary walks in, something, very, something happens to her that happens to all of us when we encounter darkness and brokenness, disillusionment, tragedy. Something happens. She starts to create a narrative, and she starts to develop a story that isn't true and starts to accuse people. She says to Peter and John, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. So again... She sees the emptiness, and instead of embracing it right away, she comes up with a reason for it. Surely they've taken him. So it's now somebody else's fault, because always, one of the ways that we fill our emptiness is to blame somebody else for it. And then we scapegoat them and send them out into the wilderness. Then she stoops to look in, and she sees angels. And she tells them her false narrative. Two angels, one at where Jesus' head was, one at where Jesus' feet were. And she says, hey, angelic beings that I have no idea who or what you are, they've taken away Jesus. And then she sees Jesus and says, hey, gardener, hey, worker, hey, peasant, did you take him away? And Jesus is like, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Have you ever been misunderstood before? No one, I mean, you know, we haven't ever misunderstood other people. Have you ever been misunderstood before? Have you ever been mislabeled before? Have you ever been told you're someone that you're not? And have you ever acted graciously when it happened? This is the trust tree. This is honesty session. We're having therapy right now. You can be as honest as I am. She tells Jesus, if you tell me where you put him, I will go get him. Now, we're facing the reality of brokenness in the world, and we're facing the reality of brokenness in ourselves. Some of us have everything exactly where we want it, the house, the car, the money, everything, and we still walk around with emptiness. 
We still walk around with a void. We don't know why it's there. And instead of just saying, hey, can somebody come into this emptiness and talk with me? We just shove it down and shove it down. And just like in the monastery, we push the emptiness below the area where there's function. And we live up where there's function and push the emptiness down to where, and just, just get it down there in the basement. Mary stoops to look in, but before she does, Peter and John walk into the tomb, and it says this. It says, they saw and they believed, for as yet they did not understand the resurrection. That's a confusing phrase. They saw and they believed, but they didn't understand the resurrection. So what did they believe? And they ran away with naive optimism, and they, they, they left before they could understand what they were believing. And this is one way that we deal with our emptiness. We run away from it and just start declaring that everything is just super positive all the time. Now, Peter and John, that night, will lock themselves in a room for fear of the Jews and the Romans... And when they hear that Jesus is risen, they will deny that he was risen and be rebuked by Jesus that night. So running away, claiming positive things, saying positive affirmations, declaring good over your life, manifesting all the things that we want to manifest, it doesn't work. You end up behind locked doors, denying the reality of the very thing you say you believe. And you have to act fake and cheery. Does everybody love fake and cheery people? My wife, who I love dearly, Dearly, more than you could ever possibly imagine, who's gorgeous today, by the way. And also every day for everybody who thought that was weird. She says to me, besides Christmas and Thanksgiving, what's one of your favorite holidays? And I said, Memorial Day. I love Memorial Day, Jeff. Beginning of summer, everyone's outside, everyone's having their arguments outside now instead of inside, right? Like we could hear you know, neighbors who live 100 feet away, I hear your business, you hear my business, it's wonderful, and you try to drown it out with some music, maybe some 90s R&B hits. Jacqueline's like, I can't stand Memorial Day. And I said, but you love the summer. And she goes, I love the summer, but I hate Memorial Day. And I'm like, I shouldn't ask, but can you explain that, please? And she's like, when I think of Memorial Day, I just think of a whole bunch of people with, like, potato salad and burgers going to each other's houses. And I'm like, yes! That's why it's my favorite. She's like, but it's like forced cheeriness. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. And I told Chris what she said, and Chris is like, oh, yeah, I totally agree. Like, my friends are just some dark, dark human beings. (laughs) Was that on purpose? Yeah, no, it wasn't. (laughs) We don't, we have to paste this cheeriness And what happens when we just walk around saying positive things and acting like the news isn't real and, you know, convincing ourselves that we can just look at everything we don't like and call it fake news as if we're petulant children. And it ends up in fear and behind locked doors. And then in Luke's gospel, there's another couple. So Peter and John run away with naive, naive positivity. And then two other disciples in Luke chapter 24, they leave in naive negativity and they leave on the Emmaus Road. And we know this story. And they leave Jerusalem because they say it's distressing all of the things that have happened. We can't stay there anymore. So you have two ways that we deal with the emptiness in the world and the emptiness within ourselves. We push it down into the basement, like in the monastery, and then we either run away from it, 
faking that we're positive or we leave it saying it'll never be good. I have to go someplace else. And we break our commitments and we break our faithfulness. Maybe even sometimes tragically to our own self, we have to leave. But Mary doesn't run with positivity and Mary doesn't leave distressed. Her tears anchor her to the place of emptiness and she stoops to look in. And here's what happens. As when, when Chris and I got into the car, Chris is like, man, can you believe that the Vanderbilt mansion is directly across the street from the monastery? I'm like, I didn't know it was until that moment. And I was like, yeah, I think about that all the time. That's amazing. Like right across the street. He's like, it's amazing, right? And I'm like, yeah, whew. That's like all the time. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe it's across the street. And then I'm like, so, so why do you think that's amazing? <laughs> And he's like, well, you know, in the, in the 1850s to about the 1880s, that was the most affluent, most wealthy family in the entire country. I was like, yeah, I know, I know. That's, you know, they were very rich, you know, make it rain. Like, they were just totally, like, and he's like, then they had a, you know, they had a family reunion in 1973, and none of them had any more money. And now their house that was once full is an empty museum. And I'm like, yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I, 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 I knew that. I was thinking you were going to say something newer than what I already knew. And he's like, isn't it interesting that across the street, across the river, from what once was a full home that is now a vacant, empty museum, is this monastery where everybody lives in simplicity, everybody has what they need, and they're giving life to all of these pastors everywhere. He said, there's always life right next to emptiness. And I was like, Chris, can I just have my monastery, please? Can I have one thing in my life that you don't tell me you know more about? And he's like, and how about that emptiness? Ian, can you put the, uh, the second picture, the one with the emptiness? Can, he said, how about that room that Brother Randy said was pointless? I was like, I don't even care anymore. I'm like, Chris, what did Jesus tell you? What did Jesus tell you, Chris Magdalene? Like, what did... He's like, Brother Randy stood in that spot and said, it's just empty and pointless. And I said, yeah. And Chris said, but that emptiness is holding up the house. And he said, that emptiness is in a library, but there's no tables or books in it. And he said, in the busyness of our life, in the libraries of our life, in the chaos of our life, sometimes we have to have a spot that's empty because it's emptiness that holds up the house. I was like, why don't you start going to the monastery now? You can have Brother Randy, and I'll go someplace else. But I thought about that as I was reading Isaiah. I was reading Isaiah, and I was saying, God, the world, there, there's this, this text, this, I'm going to create a new heaven, a new earth, and, and babies are going to live to be 100, and, and people who are 100 are going to be considered young, and the predators will, will no longer be predators, so the prey will no longer be prey. And I'm like, it just feels like emptiness. And all of a sudden, I said, God, what do I do with this impossibility that I feel? How do I deal with the impossibilities in myself, the emptiness in myself? I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I'm a fairly good guy. I'm an okay dad. I'm an amazing husband. I'm all of these things and still walk around with emptiness. Am I the only one? Does anybody have some emptiness that you walk around with and you just try to push it and you just try to say, and it turns into anxiety and it turns into depression and it turns into confusion, maybe anger, all kinds of things. And there's Mary saying, I'm not leaving. So what does God do? She accuses 
an ethereal person. She accuses Jesus himself of stealing the body. Here's why, and here's an Easter Sunday message for you, and here's why there's hope with what I'm saying right now. Because what God does is, God's saying, I have the emptiness there by design. And I'm not upset that you're upset about it. I'm not upset that you want to run away from it. I'm not upset that sometimes you do run away from it. I'm going to be in it, and I'm going to be inviting you closer to it, because one day you're going to show up in your own emptiness. And I'm not going to yell at you for falsely accusing. I'm not going to yell at you for developing a fake news narrative. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what the angels do. Why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? I read those lines, and the Holy Spirit said to me, you're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to not like how you feel inside. You're allowed to misunderstand Jesus. You're allowed to weep over something that's really positive, but you can't see it. Who could have? When Jesus showed up as the gardener, it doesn't say he disguised himself as one. You would not have known, like if you saw somebody die brutally a few days ago and you saw them again, you wouldn't recognize them because nothing in your brain would compute that it's them standing there. If Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him when he went to Egypt, how much more is she not going to recognize Jesus? And Jesus knows that. And so do the angels. And they say, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And the presence of God invites you into your own emptiness to say, let's sit down and have a conversation here. I'm not saying stop crying, be more positive. I'm not saying, he's not saying, why are you accusing people? You're wrong for accusing people. Don't accuse people, Anthony. He's saying, just come here. Who are you looking for? And why are you weeping? And she accuses again. They took away Jesus. And she turns around. And Jesus says, why are you weeping? And who are you looking for? He invites her deeper into her own emptiness. And right at the crucial moment, Jesus truly being a gardener, cultivating her heart, cultivating her tears, causing her tears to water a ground that she didn't even know precious seeds were in in her own soul. Jesus doesn't correct her. Jesus doesn't say you should have had more faith. Jesus doesn't say, I told you time and time and time again that I would raise from the dead. Jesus says, Mary. And here's what's interesting when you read the text carefully. She was in the tomb, and it says that she turned and saw the gardener. So now she's facing the gardener. And then when he said her name, it says that she turned and saw Jesus. This means one of two things, and I think it means both. Number one, it means that she physically turned. And then when Jesus said her name, her heart turned. Or it means, or should I say, end it means, that when she turned, she saw Jesus. And when she turned this way, she saw Jesus. And when she turned this way, she saw Jesus. Because Jesus is now everywhere. You can't turn away from him. You can't reject him. You can't run up or down without bumping right back up into him. Because Jesus is now everywhere where your emptiness is. And he's not angry at it. He's inviting you into it to show you, I've been there. I am there. And I will continue to be there. 
Mary says, teacher. And Jesus says, don't cling to me. It never says that she grabbed hold of him. She said, teacher. And he said, don't cling to me. She said, teacher, because what she's trying to say is, teach me how to get out of this. Teach me about this emptiness I feel. Give me information so that I can ascend out of my stuff, that I can ascend out of my situation. But that is not God's primary move. Sometimes I feel like we're spiritual bobbleheads where our brain is so much bigger than our body because our soul is malnourished because all we do is feed the brain doctrine and scriptures and all these things. But when Mary says, teacher, he says, don't cling to that. I want to give you an encounter that no one can teach, but you'll just know happened to you. In Luke's version of this story, there is an astounding question asked to the women. They say, and this is, we know this phrase, so much. They say to the women, why are you seeking the living among the dead? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Think about this question. Just pause for a moment. Think about this question. Why are you seeking the living? See, when we hear among the dead, just pause on that part for a moment. They go into the tomb with spices to anoint a dead body. And the angels say, why are you seeking the living? As soon as we hear among the dead, we lose the point Why are you seeking the living? What should their response have been? I'm not. I'm not seeking the living. I'm at the tombs. I have spices because for a thousand years, our people embalm our loved ones in a particular way. What do you mean, why am I seeking the living? I'm seeking the dead among the dead. But the question was, why are you seeking the living among the dead? And what God is doing in that moment is he's revealing to them and he's revealing to all of us that we have more good in us than we ever give ourselves credit for, that buried beneath the rubble of all of our vices and sin and all this kind of stuff, we always have been looking for the living and we never knew. We feed off of sin books, and we feed off of moralism, and we feed off of pastors who constantly tell us how much we're doing wrong, because that is now our new identity, and we feel comforted when we're rebuked. But in reality, this story, this Easter, Jesus is saying, there is so much good in you, you're seeking the living, and you don't even know. Those feelings that you have in the midst of your emptiness, that's not emptiness, that's hope. Hope holds up the house. Hope is why we can get up again. Hope, and then Abraham hopes against hope because there's a hope that anybody can come up with and then there's a hope that only Easter can come up with. But you're not as crippled inside as you think you are. You're not as off as you think you are. You're not as awful as you think you might be. You're searching for the living, and you're going to find it. And if all you think, well, no, I wasn't. I was just searching for the dead among the dead. You're not. The image of God is in you. It's alive and well. And Jesus is always calling it right up out of the grave. So this Easter season, embrace your emptiness. Sit in it. The presence of God is there. As a famous poet once said, Jesus is no longer in the room. He's no longer outside of the room. 
He has become the room itself. You can't get away from him. And he's left emptiness because your emptiness is really your hope. When I read that Isaiah text and said, I don't want to do another memorial service if this is what the Bible is saying, that emptiness that I was feeling is actually hope. And it's holding up the house. So put a chair in the emptiness. Sit there. It's why we come to church on Sunday. Guess what? Right now, your houses are empty. And if somebody knocked on the door and said, Maddie and Anthony, are they here? Are Maddie and Anthony here? A neighbor would have to say, they're not here. They've risen. And they've gone to the place where Jesus said you would meet him. The emptiness of our homes right now is a testimony to a culture that's trying to fill emptiness. And the emptiness of our home right now shows that we live for something more than for today. That we live, that something is calling us from the future and calling us from the past and sustaining our present moment. This is why we come to church on a Sunday. Because this building is empty until we show up. And when we show up in the emptiness, it's proof that in the midst of a world around this building, when we're here for a little while, we, our emptiness is formed, it's given, it's given structure, it's hardened in place because our emptiness is what holds up the rest of the world. When we inhabit this emptiness and as broken people shout broken praises and preach broken messages and say broken hellos and how are you and I'm blessed and all this kind of stuff when we lie to each other's faces every single Sunday what we're doing is we're filling emptiness with hope so that when we leave and we enter all kinds of other emptiness even our own we realize that there is a presence saying the living is actually here and you didn't even know let's stand to our feet this morning Come on, does that hope feel good this morning? Does that? I love that sweater, man. Can I have it? Right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Jesus, of all of the symbols and realities that he could leave us with, he leaves us with a meal. And he describes the meal as his brokenness. And what is brokenness if not space that shows up where something was once connected? Like, I broke my foot. And when they showed it on the x-ray, you saw space where there should be no space. And Jesus offers us space. Like, this was one loaf. And it's now broken into hundreds of pieces. It's broken into spaces. Because we're called to inhabit emptiness. We're called to inhabit pieces of a whole. Because we are only whole when we come together. We're only whole when we all show up and put our emptiness together. And when we all put our pieces of emptiness together, all of a sudden, it looks like structures that are holding up a palace. Now, something tells me deep down, Brother Randy knew what he was doing when he stood in the center of that emptiness and said, this is pointless. He probably knew that Chris needed to hear that. He probably knew it would annoy me that they had a moment together, even though I've been investing four years into that monastery. Jesus is inviting you into his brokenness where you can place yours. His brokenness puts our brokenness back together. 
his spilled blood cleans up everything that is spilled in our life. Just take 30 seconds in your own mind right now and just, it'll, it'll come to you right away. Where is the easiest emptiness in your life? Just think about it for a moment. Where is the easiest place? There's caverns below caverns below caverns, but where's the first one? He's filling that area with bread. He's filling that area with his body. He's filling that area with his very life. And he's inviting you to sit down and to become friends, not just with him, but become friends with your emptiness. It'll no longer be an enemy. It'll become an asset. It'll become how you pray. It'll become how you yearn. And also, you'll realize that the emptiness in your life is really space for other people who need to be in communion and relationship and talk with you. Sometimes when we're feeling the most empty, we also feel the most useless. I'm the one who needs help. I can't help anybody. No, 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 no. It says in Hebrews that we have a high priest who's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has suffered exactly how we have. And it's because that Jesus suffered that he has space in his life for us. So if you're suffering this morning, you are uniquely qualified to help somebody else in their suffering because that suffering in your life is space, and space means room, and room means Jesus is there. And when Jesus is there, so are other people. So don't wait till you get better. Don't wait till the feeling of emptiness goes away. First, sit there a while and meet Jesus. And if you think he's the gardener, that's fine. He is. Cultivating. Not to ruin a very special moment, but isn't it a little OCD that Jesus came out of the tomb and was like, okay, who am I going to go to first? Wait, these flowers, who did this? Who put these flowers like this? I need to fix them. And while he's fixing the landscaping around the tomb, Mary's like, excuse me, gardener? See, you don't know that the little things that you enjoy in life, if you stop to actually enjoy them, you might have an encounter with somebody else who desperately needs to hear you say their name who needs to hear you say their name, not give them advice, not tell them what they're doing wrong, not rebuke them. Let them know that you know them. Jesus would rather you know that he knows you than that you are correct, than that you're right, than that you're moral, than that you're living the right way. He would rather you know that I know who you are than anything else because all that other stuff, that takes care of itself in the relationship of knowing. So if there's something that you particularly enjoy, why does Jesus enjoy gardening? Because he's the last Adam whose job it was is to tend the garden. And in the spirit of something that Jesus and also Steve Relier really enjoy, Jesus is just like, before I go show myself to Herod and Pilate, let me just fix these flowers a second. And while he's doing a hobby... He changes somebody else's life. Don't skip over the things you love. Have time for them, even for moments. Because when you're there, Jesus is there, and someone else is going to meet you there, and life is going to happen. Okay, I promise. That is my last musing. For No, two more things. No, I'm just kidding. Lord Jesus, it was on the night when you were betrayed 
when everyone for whom you lived and sacrificed everything, on the night when the people over whom you enacted your greatest love and poured out your whole life, when they denied you and betrayed you and doubted you and thanklessly ran away from you, leaving you in empty space, leaving you to cry out, why have you forsaken me? Why is there so much space around me when there hasn't ever been? You didn't rebuke them. You didn't yell at them. And you didn't say, this is my body broken by you. You held up the bread and you said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you come to this table, as often as the sun goes down on your life, as often as you're standing in a night where you feel betrayed, as often as things seem empty and going wrong in the world and in your life, as often as you come to the table of that kind of moment, eat this bread and do it in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and he gave thanks Because even in empty space, thanksgiving can show up as if from nowhere. Because it might be empty, but it's not vacant. So this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, drink it to be made whole, to remember me. And so Holy Spirit, right now we pray that you would descend on this bread and make it for your people, the body and blood of your son Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also, that we might be forgiven of our sins and healed to see our emptiness in a whole new way. The spaces of our life where hope has not matched up with reality as a sacred sanctuary in our life to meet you and to meet others for healing, that we would leave here this Easter Sunday like a river of life mingled with fire, bursting forth from these sanctuary doors and flooding the streets of Beacon, the Hudson Valley, and the surrounding area with life and growth, revival, and healing. Bless us as we come to your table. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Everybody who's on this side of the room, you can come down this aisle, starting in the back. The ushers will release you and you could receive here and everybody on this side you can come down this aisle and receive here and then leave through the center aisle if you don't feel comfortable coming forward for communion the ushers will have communion cups for you as the worship team ministers come and receive the body of the lord thanks for listening to the salem tabernacle podcast for more information about us including gathering times and our location Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.